0: From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll look at the impact of the Adderall shortage and how doctors and patients are adjusting. Then we'll tell you about a project that's working to recover the more than 80,000 service members declared missing in action.
1: One of the major challenges of doing this work is just that it's a race against time. And if you think about it in terms of these are cold cases, again, 70 or 80 plus years down the line, you know we're losing our eyewitnesses every year. We're losing information.
0: Plus, we'll learn about the week in 1968 when entertainer Harry Belafonte hosted The Tonight Show during one of America's most tumultuous years.
2: They trusted him enough, or he demanded probably both, that he could still be entertaining and get the ratings
0: that they needed to get while also talking about the serious issues of the day. All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here's today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski, thanks for joining us. Adderall is in short supply. This is impacting millions of people, including here in Wisconsin. Both young people and adults diagnosed with ADHD are struggling with the impact of the shortage. But a local doctor is guiding patients to find alternative treatments for ADHD. Dr. Jake Behrens is a psychiatrist at Envision ADHD in Mequon. He joins Lake Effect's Mallory Chang.
3: Adderall is a medication most commonly used to treat ADHD, also known as attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And for many people who routinely take Adderall, this shortage is really affecting how they're functioning on the day-to-day. And Dr. Barron's, how exactly does Adderall work for someone who has ADHD? Uh,
4: often I'll be kind of drawing everything out of what's going on in the brain and how things come together. But long story short, I was quote-unquote a stimulant medication. Um, I know it's a confusing term where you think of something that's going to be stimulating or turning everything on or jacking things up, and how the heck can that help with you know hyperactivity, so to speak. You have to ask yourself of what is it stimulating? And in this case, if stimulating kind of more dopamine, norepinephrine release, um, try to be as predominant in the prefrontal cortex is possible in the areas that are involved with executive function. So I, I like to say we're kind of stimulating the brakes, so to speak. So people can be in a different state to better be able to prioritize, organize and inhibit all that stuff coming out of that you know Ferrari engine of the brain that they otherwise have.
3: Could you give examples of how that all kind of works? Could you give a visual of what that looks like?
4: Well, I always think, you know, our brains, have, you know, and humans is highly evolved. I would say, you know, this Ferrari engine you have, um, that's just pumping things out, thoughts, movements, emotions, memories, impulses, you name it. It naturally does that. We have high horsepower, a lot being generated at any moment. And I always equate it, you know, if we're on a, you know, on the Autobahn, Ferrari straight shot, pedal to metal, high RPM. You're like, this is where I feel in control. This is what I'm capable of. This is amazing. But you know, in life, as even on the Autobahn, you're still going to hit some of these simple mundane things. I don't care if it's you know, a curve, traffic, road construction. Let's just say some stoplights here and there. I don't care how good your engine is or how much horsepower you have, but if your brakes don't work when you need them to, you're going to feel out of control in the driver's seat. And that's where I think of here. It's not about trying to take away people's horsepower. like That's the gift that we have. It's about just trying to make it so that we're in better contr- control, that we can organize, prioritize, and inhibit those other things so we can attend to what was, you know, we ultimately deem to be most important in our day-to-day. ADHD is purely processing. It's not like potential or IQ, but often you know, people can do really well in the three things. They're in motion. It's doing something that they enjoy and gets their attention because there's the novelty or the enjoyment or if there's some level of stress, pressure, deadline. And you know what you're capable of in those moments, but it's the dotting I's, crossing T's, the mundane day-to-day things. That's often where people seem to struggle the most.
3: That's a great visual. Thinking of a red car, Ferrari, driving really fast and taking those brakes at the stoplight. And Dr. Barron's at this time with this Adderall shortage, how are you advising your patients through this? What are some alternative treatments that are available?
4: Whenever going over Treatments for ADHD. I always think it's important to, you know, whoever you're working with, that they're able to kind of go through a full menu of options, medications, therapy, coaching, exercise, diet, you know, further labs or testing, kind of more, more of like targeted supplementation. Are there other ways to go after it? Stimulants have a lot of, lot of data, then used, you know, some of the longer studied medications that are out there. They are controlled substances. So there's kind of a litany of difficulty prescribing and concerns to have with them, but it's always something you want to go over enough. And often on that side, you basically have the amphetamine or kind of the Adderall side, mixture of levoamphetamine, dextroamphetamine, and then the Ritalin or methylphenidate side. Both work similarly. Both work to basically be promoting uh, dopamine and norepinephrine when they're active in the body. Technically equal evidence, equal likelihood of benefit, equal tolerability between the two. You really can't say that one side is better or different than the other. So with these, it's really about fine tuning to the individual's body. And then I always think when breaking medications down, I'm going to work with the patient. I always say it's not worth spending more than, I'm just going to say $35 when you first start um, with or without insurance, you have different ways of being able to find things. Generally, you know, it's working to start with extended release options, um, trying to make it as out of sight, out of mind for the individual as possible. Um, even without insurance, you know, XR was sometimes a go-to because using good Rx at certain pharmacies, you could roughly find it for $30, $35. Um, I talk a lot about, I, I use dollar signs when I talk through options with people because that's the info I would want to know when making a decision. And because of insurance, it can be, it, it's a lot of smoke and mirrors. And a lot of times if you rely on insurance, you don't know until you go to the pharmacy and then they give you the price. So in this case, yeah, if the Adderall is not in stock, you know, I'm always thinking of, I even created a dot phrase. So anytime anyone needs a refill, I'm to the point now is like, okay, hey, I'll get that over. Fingers crossed. It's good to go. If they don't have it in stock, please make sure your pharmacy can try and locate a pharmacy that has it, which a lot of times they refuse to do, or if they can tell you what doses they have, and maybe we can make something work for the time being with that or else... I even put in and here's you know, potential dose equivalents of some other um, kind of brands right now we have a different form, something that mimics Adderall XR. I'll give them handouts on that, show them the pharmacies where they can get that for $35. With any, That's with any form of commercial insurance. The moment they need a refill, I, I have so little faith that the pharmacy will have it right now that I am giving that just automatically with every refill that I, I, I message them back with. That's how dire it is.
3: I just also want to touch on too, Dr. Barons, that you at your practice specifically help even adults with ADHD. It's a common misconception that ADHD exclusively impacts only children. Most well-known traits that come to mind when think of ADHD is physical hyperinactivity or inability to sit still, especially with like little kids. But that couldn't be farther from the truth. It impacts adults too. And an estimate, Dr. Barons, how many adults are affected by ADHD or have ADHD? traits.
4: The more current estimates out there is four to 11% of the population. Well, again, this is going to be a kind of a moving target. It's not like magically all this is starting to happen. It's more of a selection bias where the more we're aware of things, the more we're able to look for it. That number is going to change. It's not an actual representation of what happened in the 70s and versus now. It's more of what we looked for and what we found. But it's certainly something that that is there. Like I can't think of any other medical conditions that just magically disappear at the age of 18 as we used to think that ADHD did. But obviously, you know, it can look very different. Even the way we're taught often, even in medical school, is we think of, you know, that hyperactive young boy, basically, is that quintessential what everybody thinks, bouncing off the walls. Anybody walking down the street can be like, what the heck's going on there? That's so often, I think, especially in, in girls and in adults, Even like an adult, not saying they didn't have symptoms when they're younger, but basically the way you call attention to yourself, where you might get labeled or looked further towards ADHD is basically if you do two things, like failing so miserably that you're falling off the academic curve and like, what the heck's going on? We need to evaluate more. or basically being so overtly hyperactive that you're driving your parents and your teachers batty and they're like pulling out their hair, like, please get me help. Here And that's what leads to it. But for those that have what I say more of the internalized symptoms, the internal restlessness and everything going on, that's not going to be calling attention to itself. And even as kids, you're not aware of kind of yourself versus others. Wait, is there something going on with me that's different? We don't gain that, that sense of ego until more early adulthood. Not to mention, you know, we're in school, we have parents, we have a lot of structure routine, we're involved in sports and, and organizations, everything is keeping us busy and engaged. And to me, it's almost the rule, not the exception, that it's when we kind of take off the training wheels, we give up the home structure, the teachers that are staying on top of us, and we leave home for the first time. Say we go to college, professors don't care, they're not staying on top of you. You don't have, you know, your parents and things staying on top of you, making sure things are done. And to me, it's the rule, not the exception, that that's when a lot of things can hit the fan. As well as that's even as that young adult, that's when you're coming to terms of even development and you're able to look like, wait, is there something different with me? Is this is this an issue? And do I want help with it?
3: Dr. Behrens, I'm just curious with the patients that you work with, just generally, what are some traits that an internal ADHD person might experience or experience the world
4: Often I think we think of it, oh it's just focus or sitting still. Like I hate the term ADHD personally, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. It sounds like we'll just sit still and pay attention, just do it. It sounds like willpower, which is totally not not the case. And the term attention deficit, it sounds like will you never have the ability to ever pay attention? It's broken. You have an absolute deficit, and you know that's not the case. It's very variable. Why are people so good in these? keyed up last minute pressure, like come alive and are fantastic, but then struggle with just seemingly the simple day-to-day type of things. And when I think about it here, it's like, okay, is everything done last minute? Do you need some pressure built up even just to get yourself to be able to sit down and do what's in front of you? You know, you it's not like you feel like Popeye eating a can of spinach. You're like, here we go. I want to write this paper. But do you find that if you try and do anything ahead of time, you just find you're in a worthless state. You're, you're Legs bouncing, your minds in a thousand different places. Or often, I'll we'll find is just doing simple day-to-day tasks, making plans with friends, time management to get places on time, be able to you know pay bills, handle emails, get through. Often, it's the small day-to-day tasks.
3: Just circling back to. Our main topic today with the current Adderall shortage, it's impacting a lot of people. From your physician point of view, is there an estimate when this medication shortage will end and what can people really do in the meantime?
4: First thought, is this something, you know, is a major shortage of the medication itself? Is it a natural resource issue? Sadly, the more I learn about it, the more upset I get is initially we have, no, you have multiple generic manufacturers, multiple plants, so to speak. One of them had a labor dispute. Understand those are forces beyond us. But in here, we're we're now kind of maintained because there's a ceiling on how many total pills as a controlled substance can be released to market. And as opposed to, okay, one of those plants goes down, can the other ones increase temporarily to fill in for the ceiling? Unfortunately, the way our systems are set up uh, with the FDA is no, they cannot ramp up there's a max ceiling per company versus a max ceiling in general. I've heard March is supposedly when get back to that normal level. But in the meantime, what I always recommend is obviously whoever your prescriber is, I hope that you have a setup so you have some form of direct communication with them to try and kind of navigate this on the go. And I think just being aware if you're working with someone that stays on top of all of the medications for ADHD, that might be one of your best suggestions. The last thing I want and I've seen this, unfortunately, in some psychiatric communities, Is even in psychiatrists, they know one or two stimulants. And they're just like, well, OK, you can't find this one. So let's go to this completely different one. Just all of a sudden, I'm not saying it's not effective. All the medications have good likelihoods of benefit. I just don't like for the patients to be thrown into a whole new kind of treatment regimen, just kind of willy nilly or on the fly. I know it's a lot of technical aspects of the biggest things. There there are options that are out there, and it's really about fine-tuning and finding what works best for you and your body.
3: Well, Dr. Behrens, I really appreciate your diligence on this topic, and I really appreciate you being here today on Lake Effect.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you. Dr. Jake Behrens is the founder and a psychiatrist at Envision ADHD in Mequon. He spoke with Lake Effect's Mallory Chang. The remains of about 82,000 U.S. service members who were declared missing in action over the last eight decades still have not been found. Of the missing, about 1,500 are from Wisconsin. In the last few years, the Missing in Action Recovery and Identification Project at UW-Madison has been helping bring closure to families of the missing. The project, along with the federal government, uses DNA and other technology to solve some of the mysteries and to repatriate remains. Vanessa Cook is the lead historian for the UW Project. She joins WUWM's Chuck Hornbach to share more.
5: The federal government, the Defense Department, has certainly been doing some recovery of remains over the decades. How did the UW get involved?
1: Yeah, so the agency within the Department of Defense dedicated to this work full-time is called the DPAA, formerly JPAC, if some of uh, some of the listeners remember it referred to as JPAC. But in 2015, it became the DPAA, the Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency. And so they have a budget and a mandate to make recoveries. And we became, UW MIA Project became the first academic partner back around 2015, 2016 Uh, When my director uh, started the project and thought, great, we have all these resources at UW-Madison that we can try to devote to helping solve these uh, cold cases from 70, 80 years ago. So since then, the DPAA has other partnerships with museums, with universities, but we were the first back then.
5: Talk a little bit more about those resources the UW has. Is it technology? Is it people? What sort of staff skills are there, and then how do they use
1: them? (laughs) Yeah. So we are very rich in human resources, very intelligent staff members, faculty, students. We rely on student volunteers to devote hours to doing this research, beginning with historical background to tracing airplane crashes and locations and even doing anthropological and archaeological scouting missions as well. So, for example, we have scientists in the biotech center working on some projects to develop eDNA technology, and what that does is it uses a water sample from a more shallow coastal body of water to test it and see if there's human remains deeper in that body of water. And so it does save some man hours to know what's actually underneath there and whether it's worth the time of trying to excavate, say, a plane crash or a shipwreck. We're working with some computer data projects to try and use key terms and algorithms to match up X-files of unknown remains with a narrower limit of who they may belong to, what name of the missing in action individual might match those unknown remains.
5: Okay. Well, maybe you could talk about a, an example, a case study of where the UW was involved and in working with others and uh, how it went.
1: For one example, we recently have been tracking some remains and some crash locations and possible grave sites in Poland, in uh, Western Poland. And that started with collaborating with a family member of one of the pilots of the crashes during World War II. He was able to give us some information. He had contacts over over in Poland, uh, some experts, some amateur historians and experts who are passionate about recovering these uh, missing in action uh, allies as much as we are. And in October, we sent a very small team of graduate students and University of Wisconsin staff members over to do initial surveying uh, of these sites, and there is potential there to go back and do an excavation there.
5: Without giving details of the individual, what types of potential evidence, uh, what gives that case promise?
1: There are some uh, geographical areas of interest that show that a crater might exist. So there are still depressions in the ground in forested areas and swampy areas that indicate that a massive crash occurred there. It could also be um, remnants of bombings because that area was heavily bombed by the Allies. And then there are also eyewitness accounts that were recorded from back in the 1940s that indicate that a temporary cemetery might have existed along some roadways that we are able to locate today.
5: You talk about in that uh, case involving Poland, a family member. What is the role of family requests, uh, family interest in these investigations?
1: We are very hesitant uh, in our organization to reach out to a family member cold to, you know, call them or contact them because we don't want to, first of all, bring up a painful subject for them. Also, we don't want to give them any false hope that, you know, because we're this institution, research institution that we might be able to solve this case. It's all baby steps, and we can't ever make a promise or guarantee that we're going to actually have um, a recovery and identification. However, if we know that a family member is looking for information, if they contact us via email or call us or word of mouth, of course, we're going to devote some resources and, and man hours to doing that.
5: In the example about Poland that was on land, Talk about, if you would, the challenges of finding on land versus finding remains at sea.
1: So when I said there were about 82,000 missing in action cases still remaining to this day, about half of those are presumed to be water losses, either an aircraft crash into the sea or a shipwreck, Navy shipwreck. Those are, as you can imagine, much more difficult to recover those remains depending on the depth. You're not just going to stumble upon These remains, you know, a farmer's not just going to accidentally dig up uh, debris or remains from his field. So the technology for underwater recovery is developing. That's the good news. There are, for example, kind of machine drones that can scan the ocean floor at a much more efficient rate than human divers can do. And they can detect any kind of anomalies in in the ocean floor uh, and foreign objects that we might be able to identify as debris from a crash.
5: Again, in the example involving Poland, you mentioned there were recordings of past eyewitness accounts. Are those decaying? Because yeah. uh, the eyewitnesses, uh, like all of us, are decaying as well.
1: One of the major challenges of doing this work is just that it's a race against time. And if you think about it in terms of these are cold cases, again, 70 or 80 plus years down the line, decades uh, later, our eyewitnesses are, you know, we're losing our eyewitnesses every year. We're losing information. It's scattered throughout the world in archives and collections and private collections as well. And so we're trying to collect as much information as we can to solve these cases. And also the remains themselves, as the years go on, may disintegrate.
5: Due to natural processes, or is it highway construction and building projects and so on as well?
1: Both, uh, depending on the kind of soil that the remains are in, that will have an effect on the rate of disintegration and whether the DNA sample is strong enough to make a match. But also, yes, all the development around particularly Europe that has been going on, if something has been built upon, then we don't really have access to that plot of land anymore.
5: Do you run into political obstacles uh, these days in other countries?
1: Not as much in Europe, but that does limit our ability in some areas of the Pacific and Asia, depending, you know, North Korea, for example, is one area of challenge for us and for the DPAA trying to get into that region to recover remains. In Burma, for example, that was a little-known theater of action in World War II, but we still have a lot of MIAs from that region, plane crashes in that region, China as well, the Himalayan area. But because of political unrest there or, you know, barriers just with our diplomacy, we do have some trouble.
5: Another challenge might be money. Can you talk about the financing for this effort?
1: Yes. So even though we're considered a UW organization, we do not currently receive state funding. We're hoping that that changes in the near future. But we rely a lot on private donations from individuals and organizations, other veteran-associated organizations such as the VFW of Wisconsin, and we really use that funding to go do that scouting mission in Poland recently. So it is being put to good use. We also need the money to obtain information and for that travel, for that scouting. What type of
5: individual might donate to this effort? What's uh, his or her motivation?
1: Family members, certainly, who know the kind of pain that people are still going through, they can think, you know, maybe I'll never get those answers, but if I can help another family, Uh, have some amount of closure that they might donate, anyone who has served or comes from a military family, and just those interested in using research at UW to help practical problem-solving. Students at the UW are using their academic knowledge to help families in Wisconsin.
5: What do you hear from family members who may learn more or have remains recovered? Why is this important to them?
1: It may be surprising that they are still so interested or still looking for answers 70 plus years later. However, think about the stories that are told within the family and that kind of trauma that is carried on throughout the generations. Somebody may come to us, they might not have ever met their uncle who died in the war, but they know how that affected their grandmother or their mother. And uh, so that is carried on. They know them from a picture on the wall, and they know how much that pain has affected their family members. And so they're still looking for answers, even to this day, uh, on behalf of their whole family.
5: The uh, large number, the 82,000 number across the U.S., of that number, there's a significant number of Wisconsinites, too. What can you tell me in terms of what types of service they were in most frequently, or what more can you say about the Wisconsin? MIAs?
1: So there are about 1,500 missing in action individuals of that larger number who enlisted from Wisconsin or are considered a hometown in Wisconsin. We do focus on those initially. For example, if a student comes to me, I'm going to start with a Wisconsin-based case. So we do consider that our mandate. However, they're going to typically be an Air- Army Air Force. So they would have crashed with a crew of maybe nine or 10 other people from all over the country. So we don't stop or we're not exclusively focused on just that Wisconsinite. We do investigate the entire crew and the incident to know what happened to each of those crew members after the crash or after the war. And we follow the leads where they go.
5: The uh, motivation, it's not just a job, it sounds like. What keeps you and your team going?
1: So I'm a historian. I have a PhD in history, and a lot of it is theoretical or, you know, dealing with just the past. But this is really uh, current events as well because of the family members who are still looking for answers and coming to us with, you know, that emotional impact. And sometimes family members may not even know that we're on the case or that the DPAA is on the case. And out of the blue, they could find out that, you know, somebody has been identified. So it's a long process, but it never ends. And it's always uh something exciting and we see the passion in the students who do this research too and that's very rewarding.
5: And the uh, thank yous you might get from a family that's helped? Yes.
1: Even if we can't recover remains just writing up a narrative of what happened and trying to find additional information. That is very valuable to them too.
5: Such a large number. How optimistic are you about your team and the federal government being able to continue and really make a big dent Uh, in the MIA problem?
1: I'm very optimistic, especially because of those technological advances I referred to earlier, and hopefully that'll just keep getting better, including the DNA analysis gets better every year, and we're able to get more from a smaller amount. And so that kind of technology advance, I think, will help. Uh, The underwater recovery, we still need technology for those mountainous ranges that are very treacherous and difficult to get to as well. But uh, with the financial support that we get from our uh, network, hopefully we can continue to do those scouting missions. And we have a few on our plate right now that we're hoping to get to within the next year. Vanessa
0: Cook is the lead historian for the Missing in Action Recovery and Identification Project at UW-Madison. She spoke with WUWM's Chuck Hornbach. Later this month, UW-Madison will host a Recovery Innovation Technology Summit. You can find more information about that at wuwm.com. Did you know that you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Just search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and hear us on demand. You can also follow wuwm on Instagram where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. After 20 years in prison, a Milwaukee man started his own trucking business. We'll learn how he's now working to help others in about 15 minutes. But first, in 1968, there was a full week where Johnny Carson gave up his host chair to a black entertainer on The Tonight Show. After this break, we'll tell you about a documentary that looks at the cultural impact that it had. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. In 1968, America was in turmoil. The nation was divided over the civil rights movement, the Vietnam War, and a variety of political differences. And in the middle of all of it, a black entertainer took over the host chair of one of the country's most iconic TV shows. For a full week, performer and activist Harry Belafonte took over for Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show. Belafonte was given full control of his guest list, which included Aretha Franklin, Paul Newman, Lena Horne, as well as Robert F. Kennedy and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., mere months before they were both assassinated. A documentary called The Sit-In, Harry Belafonte hosts The Tonight Show, explores the impact of this historic week in television. It's directed by Yoruba Richin and features Belafonte himself, as well as some of the guests he had on the famed Tonight Show couch. Rich and joined me in 2021 to share the impact this week of programming had on American television and culture. Basically, Johnny Carson,
2: who hosted The Tonight Show, recognized that there was a lot going on during this time. And he needed somebody who could take over the show and, and talk about this stuff uh, in a way that was entertaining and yet serious. And he chose Harry Belafonte to do it. Uh, From what we know, he was the one who made the decision and he asked Harry uh, to host the show for a week. It was the first time a black entertainer had hosted uh, the Tonight Show for a week. There'd been others, but not for a full week. And um, Harry agreed after some negotiation and he had on this amazing cast of characters who came in, um, everyone, artists, activists, including Paul Newman and Zero Mustel and Lena Horne and Diane Carroll and Aretha Franklin and you know, his friend, Dr. Martin Luther King. And it was his, Dr. King's last televised interview. Um, and he also had Robert Kennedy as well. And it was a couple of months before Robert Kennedy was assassinated too. And so it was this very historic week where he had on these politicians activists really bringing what was going on to an audience a wide audience remember at that time there were only three stations and the tonight show was one of the most popular shows um so it was a very historic moment in television history
0: right and Harry Belafonte also had control of the guest list for this week, which was huge. And your film refers to his bookings as spokespeople of the mood of the nation, which I think is just so aptly captured what that was. Absolutely. And it really was about
2: how Harry saw what was going on during this time. That's what I came to realize uh, as I made the film. And, you know, the film also goes into who Harry is and was at that time, what a multi-hyphenate Uh, entertainer, huge star, and a crossover star during a time of legal segregation. So Harry, who's still with us, his birthday is actually coming up soon, um, is a phenomenal figure in both entertainment and in activism.
0: Yeah, and uh, this time in history, you know, the late 1960s was also a time that showcased performers becoming activists transitioning into actively having a voice and taking a stance versus previously in the entertainment industry most would try to stay neutral
2: absolutely and i would say that harry was an entertainer and activist always so one i don't think came before the other um and yes staying neutral wasn't an option for many, especially African-Americans, but for other entertainers as well. And I, th- I think we still see that today. I don't think that's something that's lost. I mean, one of the things I think about entertainers, somebody said this, I forget where it's from, but said, you know, actors, think it's talking about actors or, or singers, have an empathy, that's part of the job is to have empathy, right? When you're trying to create a mood with your music and trying to tell a story with your music. And so I think when you have empathy, you see things differently and you see and you feel for the things that are unjust and that are unfair and want to speak out and try to change them.
0: And obviously Johnny Carson wanted to shed light and the American institution that is late night TV was and still is very white and of course sitcoms of the time didn't reflect true American life and certainly not black lives. So how significant was it for Johnny Carson to use his soapbox and kind of lend it to others to voice what he felt he couldn't voice whether because of who he was or do you know if NBC the executives obviously Johnny Carson wanted to do this and agreed but did the executives were they not as uh, enthused, shall we say, or, you know?
2: <laughs> well, I think Johnny had a lot of, he had a lot of power. That's one thing. So he was able to sit, do what he wanted to do. We do know that the executive, uh, the there's a story that, um, you know, after Belafonte, after Harry agreed to do it and, and negotiated to create, to have, you know, control of his guest list, um, and he said, you know, he said he was going to have Dr. King on, and one of the executives said uh, said something like, "Well, you know, he's not going to talk about that civil rights stuff, is he?" And Harry said, "Well, what do you th- want him to do? Sing opera?" <laughs> <laughs> um, so there obviously was some nervousness, but they let him do it, um, and uh, they trusted him an- enough, or he, you know, demanded probably both that he could still be entertaining and get the ratings that they needed to get while also talking about the serious issues of the day.
0: And with so few major networks on TV, how segregated was American media at the time? I know Seoul debuted in 1968 as well. Was it already out before this week or how did that intersect?
2: Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because I wanted to, to mention that. One of the things that I learned uh, in making the film is how segregated TV was. Uh, one of the the historians dr. King's uh, historian of dr. King said remember Dr. King was rarely on TV I mean it's hard to believe that now but he was not on TV a lot um, having multiracial guests you know sitting on the couch um, uh, Johnny's couch or interacting was very rare was not common I mean we see it you know, now it's hard to believe in terms of what we see on television. So it was a big deal. And uh, Mr. Soul, I believe, came on after, uh, debuted after this week, as did Julia, the groundbreaking show Julia with Diane Carroll.
0: That's right. So with your documentary, you feature, of course, Harry Belafonte himself, but also some of the guests who took part in that week. So what was it like for you to speak with them and, you know, to show Harry his guest list and be like, what do you remember about this epic week of television? Well, it was a real pleasure,
2: obviously, to interview Harry, um, you know, a real highlight of my career. Uh, so warm and funny and um, passionate. Uh, and then the other guests were who were still with us, obviously, were, you know, very delighted to take part in it. And, um, you know, it was a long time ago. So there, we, there, there was memory jogging that we had to do, uh, show bits of the footage, you know, that we had, but that was, you know, totally makes sense. And it was, I'm really glad we got to capture a lot of the folks who, who appeared that week.
0: You mentioned being able to show some of the tapes and one of the most heartbreaking things of this film, I suppose as a producer myself, but the fact that NBC recorded over their tapes and only two half hour programs still exist of this week and some audio tapes, that's terrible. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it was terrible. We knew this going in, but you know, you'll see what we were able to to dig up in the film, um, how we were able to dig up these audio tapes that you know are, are really the first time they've been heard since uh, I think ever like heard publicly. So um, yeah, that was definitely definitely a challenge, <laughs> and 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 very sad because there's a lot that we you know a lot of those guests we we know they were on but we are not able to you know see them in action.
0: Yeah, I think you still do a great job of tying together that week and and what it means. And, you know, with this move by NBC, really opening American audiences to more perspectives, how did the Harry Belafonte week also open the door to make TV a place for more than just entertainment and escapism? You know, this proved that audiences are interested in real life and politics and things that are happening.
2: Definitely. I mean, I think that Uh, Because those tapes were lost, you know, there was an institutional memory that that was lost with those. Mm -hmm. However, he did create the pathway for this mixture of entertainment and politics in late night, which we see obviously today. And after Harry, the only, the next Black, you know, host of a late night show was Arsenio. That was something, you know, some 30 years later. So, Obviously it didn't break down the doors, you know, that, that late night got diversified, but that's usually not what happens in Hollywood. Um, there may be one thing and then silence around the issue for a long time until some other
0: uh, barrier breaker. And that was, and that was Arsenio. It's interesting that you mentioned, you know, some of that institutional memory got lost and and black voices in late nights still struggle to take hold. So how do you hope that people learning about this week now, you know, either that weren't alive at the time or needed a, a reminder of, hey, this happened, how do you want it to impact them today?
2: Well, first off, I think it's important to know about Harry's legacy and who he was and the, the importance he had in both entertainment and activism. Um, and, you know, late night, there's been demands for more diversity in late night. And hopefully this film will be another voice in calling for that, especially, you know, the times that we're living in now. We need more diversity. People get their news from late night. People get their understanding of what's going on in the, the country and the world. So obviously we need to have more diverse late night hosts who we can understand their perspective and understand their, uh, their take on it. So, you know, this I th- film I think is another voice, another cry for that.
0: Well, Yoruba Richin, I really enjoyed watching this dive into history and I wanna thank you for speaking with me about it today.
2: Thank you for having me. Uh, everyone, I hope, uh, will watch the film and, and enjoy.
0: Yoruba Richin is the director of the documentary, The Sit-In. Harry Belafonte hosts The Tonight Show. We spoke in 2021. Next, we'll learn about a formerly incarcerated Milwaukeean who started his own business and how he's sharing what he's learned with other people who have served time. That's next on Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. After 20 years of incarceration, Milwaukeean Ed Hennings knew he wanted to own his own business. When he was released, he started his own barber shop, but soon found himself interested in a new industry, trucking, specifically box trucking. He created his business Go Time Trucking, but starting it wasn't exactly easy. There was a lot to learn along the way. Now, he's sharing what he learned with other formerly incarcerated people in a course all about how to create and run a box trucking business. Hennings teaches the course along with Aaron Smith, founder of Escaping the Yards Media and U-Turn Transport. They both join Lake Effect's Joy Powers to share more about their work.
6: Aaron, what attracted you to trucking and you know creating this larger program to help people?
0: Well,
7: while I was away, I did a whole lot of reading. And I was I, I saying that the trucking industry was was in demand. A lot of people were without even having a CDL was was going down this path. And a lot of the men that I was incarcerated with once do the same thing. Um, so I actually started taking a, a CDL course while I was inside. Uh, one of the jobs that I knew that I can that I that i would be prepared for was working as a, as a dispatcher uh, for a freight brokerage company uh, because I'd had some prior experience. With being working at a freight broker on while I was on bond back in 2007 I went to prison in 2009 and so I did have some experience really pretty much the only professional experience was in trucking and so I said well you know I can give that a shot um, at least I know how to do it and so upon my release I started working for a freight broker here in Chicago and from there I figured I'd just get to get the experience I needed to start my own trucking company and I did that so uh, and I wanted to be able to hire a former incarcerated. Uh, because, again, I knew that that was an industry that a lot of men and women wanted to kind of jump into upon and release.
6: Now, as we're looking at this program, how does it work? Is it people who are formally incarcerated? Are you reaching out to people who are currently in jail or prison? How do people become involved?
7: Well, our demographic or, or target market is pretty much anyone who, who has a desire to get into the industry, uh, however Ed in our experience. Uh, you know, we've been we've been incarcerated, and again, there's countless individuals who has like some kind of a criminal record, and this is a viable option for them. So we wanted to make sure that we provided that opportunity for the men and women that were formerly incarcerated. But but nevertheless, it's not solely just for that population. It's just that we, we do focus on those men and women. And one of the ways we kind of reach out to individuals as a whole to even get into the program is through nonprofit organizations. And some of those nonprofit organizations are working with men and women who are formerly incarcerated or even just come from a disadvantaged background. And so we like to focus on that. Um, we do a lot of social media marketing and advertising as well. Word of the mouth has really uh, helped grow, help grow the courses. So we're getting around.
6: How does the program work. How do you help people through this process of ultimately becoming a trucker?
8: Well, really, ultimately, our course is a box truck course. And a box truck course doesn't require a CDL license. So we have found, uh, should I say, the easiest way to get involved in the transportation industry. And it's without a CDL license. So um, with me starting out with a box truck, one box truck, um, people seeing me come home from prison after serving 20 years. People in my community see me come home and see some success in this industry. And although they didn't see themselves cutting hair when I opened my barbershop, they could see themselves behind the wheel of a truck. So it became a little bit more enticing, a little bit more sexy for the people in my community where I'm from. And that's what prompted me, myself, to start to just give them the knowledge and the information needed to go for and uh, get involved in this business itself. And when me and Aaron and Stretch and all of us connected on making it on a larger scale, it was just organic that we all get together and do it and try to make it where not only people in our own prospective communities can get it, but make it where everybody can get it, get in on it.
6: What does the uh, training, I guess, really look like for people? What is, What is that program like?
8: Um, really, it's just a, a, a from A to Z, top to bottom, a walkthrough of how to get started and up and running. Um, we might have a student that's in California. We might have a student that's in Chicago, a student that's in Milwaukee. We can't be there hands on like that, but we show them the necessary steps through the paperwork, through Zoom calls that we do every Saturday morning, through everything, how to start with EINs, LLCs, um, DOT numbers, MC numbers, And we walk them through that step by step while also bringing on mechanics, lawyers, insurance agents, IRS people to let them know that this is all part of running a successful business. And especially in the transportation space is that you're going to need to have these relationships built in order for your business to thrive. So it's more so of us walking them through every step of the way and letting them know things that's going to be lying ahead in their journey. Because we've been there. Aaron has a trucking business. I have a trucking business. So the training looks like somebody who has the lived knowledge to say, "This is what's coming. This is how this gonna look. This is the smell of this. This is the feel of that."
7: And joy also to add to that, one of the values that the uh, box truck course that we provide is that mentorship. Not only do you get the get the course material, but you can always reach out to Ed and I and we're able to kind of walk you through, as he stated, getting your MC number right. What is the bro- What is the broker? What is the dispatcher? Just today, we had a um a student purchase a truck and go to California and pick up that truck. But going through our class, he get he was able to have access to myself and Ed. So I was able to give him multiple contacts for dispatchers and brokers so he can get on the road and start making money right away uh, once he picks up that truck. And so oftentimes the person, once they get into this industry, they may have a truck, but they don't know how to get it moving. And so we make sure that we provide that information and those contacts so you can be profitable and know how to run your box truck
6: company. I, I think some people might be listening to this, especially people who um, recently been incarcerated. I will say, even as someone who has not been recently incarcerated, this sounds like a lot of work. It sounds like a lot of red tape to cut through in some points. What would you say to people who are, you know, leery of their ability to to do this?
8: Me, myself, um, that's really my area of extreme emphasis. That's my thing is really to get people to understand that, you know, you can do it. And I love to see people that you know I'm one of them, that didn't believe like once you do the impossible once, nothing is impossible anymore. I'm not saying to anybody that it's easy, but what is. So I just need you to understand that you 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 were born with everything you need to make it, not only in trucking, but in anything that you choose to do. And it's my job and it's my duty to make sure that I I drill that in your head, that I get mm-hmm. that in your heart and in your soul that you can do it. And that's that's paramount for any of us. The One of the best parts
7: of a program like this is that you're not alone. When Ed and I, we started our, our trucking uh, outfits, you know, we we just had to kind of put one foot in front of the other and just kind of figure it out through trial and error, and, and we done so. And so we were able to kind of couple our knowledge and experience and, and provide this opportunity to others as well. So... We always a phone call or email or text away for some of our students that that may get caught in a, in a snag and need to know how you know how do I how do I apply for my MC number right what 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 should I look for in, in a freight broker or a dispatcher and so all of those answers we have because we we have experienced it already so that's the that's the bang for your buck
8: if you will that you're getting and the great thing about it is community yeah. is that when you do have a group of people are going through this process together. There's nothing like community to uh, hold each other accountable, pick each other up and answer questions, because a lot of times they might ask me and Aaron a question and somebody in the class already have the answer and they'll jump in there and just deliver the information. And it's wonderful to see some of the students who've been in a little longer and some new students who've been researching come in with a lot of knowledge and they share it in the community. So that that also helps out a lot.
6: All right, well, Ed, Aaron, thank you both so much for joining us here on Lake Effect and sharing your work.
8: All right, thank you. Wow, it was an honor. Thanks for having
0: me. Aaron Smith is the founder of Escaping the Odds Media and U-Turn Transport. Ed Hennings is the owner of Go Time Trucking. They're the co-creators of the Urban Trucker podcast, and together they teach a course on how to start and operate a box trucking business. You can find the Urban Trucker podcast wherever you find your podcasts. Smith and Henning spoke with Lake Effect's Joy Powers in October. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. If you've missed any of today's conversations or you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, simply download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Delivering life changing health news is incredibly difficult and dynamic. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll learn a strategy developed by a UW Professor to help healthcare professionals deliver this hard news. Plus, we'll dig into the trouble that Ascension Columbia St. Mary's is having with staffing and how patients are being impacted. That's tomorrow at noon on Lake Effect, right here on Listener Supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.